0: Hey, all right, and welcome to Better Yet. I'm Tim Chris, your host. Better Yet is a conversation about music. And our conversation this week is with Bela Pecker. Bela, the co-founder of Anyway Records, has a book called Love, Death, and Photosynthesis coming to us from our friends at Don Giovanni Records. Lots to talk about this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Namdi for our intro music. Marcus Nuccio for our graphics. Each week, you can see all of those on our website, betteryetpod.com. Invite you all to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Bandcamp, BetterYetPodcast.bandcamp.com. What a fucking week, huh? In case there's any question out there, this podcast supports the abolition of prisons and the police. No reform, no disarming, no de-escalation trading, no police, no prisons. Fuck Lori Lightfoot. God fucking damn. Sending love in a lot of directions this week, including Chicago, Minneapolis, and Columbus. Indianapolis, too. Fuck me. This has been getting me down a lot. I've been a little scattered the past couple of weeks, just taking focus where I can find it. Been working on this zine for Patreon. It's coming out great. Took a lot of preening, but it's like, I'm scared to look at all the other shit I've been ignoring. It's all good, but if you're relating to any of this, we're going to be all right. It's that season. Some new records coming out to be excited about. Our friend Tony Molina put a new tape out with his new project called The Lost Days. Tony Molina and Sarah Rose Janko. You can get a copy of that. Thelostdays.bandcamp.com Beautiful Daniel Johnson cover on there. We are coming up on five years of this podcast. Might be time to do some Hall of Fame inductions. Tony Molina, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And he's already part of an elite club, otherwise known as the Better Yet Patreon. Patreon.com slash Better Yet Podcast, where we've got some very fun audiovisual programming available to you. We just dropped one hell of a radio show. Played some Sebado, Emmylou Harris, and The Clean. To name a few. We also have conversations with Dave Garwacky, of If You Make It, Kevin Duquette, Top Shelf Records, Bob Vioma of Shinobu, and Fat and Funky, a whole bunch of extras from the Life's Work podcast about Laura Stevenson's Sit Resist, plus we get a weekly contribution from our guests. We got a Thou Live Set playlist from Lucy Dacus and Sarah Tudson of Illuminati Hotties. Lots of demos. From Anika Pyle, Mikey Erg, Sophia Verbilla of Harmony Woods covers. The aforementioned Tony Molina doing GBVs. 14 cheerleader cold front. We got Laura Stevenson doing Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window. My Bob Dylan. You can pledge $3 a month. That will give you access to all the bonus audio and visual content that we're posting weekly. If you pledge $10 a month, all of that. Plus, every three months, sending out some cool stuff. I've been telling you about this zine. I think we're going to print it this weekend. I got a printer. You know that? I got this laser printer. Oh, my God. It's a beaut. I think Jay and I are going to have a bookbinding party. It'll be great. Watch some Breaking Bad. Can't wait. Now, with our Patreon, we split the revenue from the podcast evenly. Between the show, the guests, and organizations chosen by our guests, Bela very sweetly asked if there was a homeless shelter in Valparaiso. So we're sending money this week to the Caring Place. It's the center here in town. Happy to be helping them out this week. If you'd like to support them and support the show, go to patreon.com slash All right. My guest this week is Bela Co. Crumpecker. Bela is the co-founder of Anyway Records, a label Bela started in Columbus, Ohio, in 1991 with Jerry Wick, the lead singer of the band Gaunt. Anyway was at the heart of a vibrant rock scene in Columbus, releasing Seven Inches from bands like Gaunt, Log, Moviola, Bell Reeve, even landed this band from Dayton called Guided by Voices for a Split with Jenny May Leffel, Jenny, along with Jerry, figure prominently in Bayla's book *Love, Death, and Photosynthesis*. Hey, you! It's interrupted by Hadley. She doesn't like it when I'm in the office. *Love, Death, and Photosynthesis* is available for pre-order at Don Records.com. It's a wonderful, touching, and both. Tragic and hopeful document from Bela as he weaves together the stories of his relationships with Jerry and Jenny, two brilliant musicians who left us too soon. And Bela tells his own story, too, of his battles with alcoholism, depression, and ADHD. But at the center, always, is music. And this is a book that I related to so much with my own experience Uh, as a recovering alcoholic, a depressive, and someone with ADHD. And it also set me down such a fun rabbit hole, taking in all these Anyway Records bands and really living in a small local scene with a record store at the center of it. This is a conversation that I was really, really looking forward to. It did come... At a tough time for Bela and for the Columbus music scene, Bob Patrick of Thomas Jefferson's Slave Apartments had just passed away. Bela learned of it the day before, and it just so happened that I had been listening to Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments' first album, Bait and Switch, just a couple hours before I got on to talk with Bela. So there are a couple references to Bob Bela wrote a very touching remembrance that ran in Columbus Alive. There's a link to that in our episode notes, but I will say, all things considered, this conversation is super fun. I'm very grateful to have been a part of it and to be sharing it with all of you. Bela's audio has some popping, which I was not able to fix in post, but it's a lovely listen nonetheless. Thank you for listening. Rate and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. We'll be back next week, but for now, Here's me and Baylor Co from Hector.
1: Keith Smart, right? That was Keith Smart. Was it?
0: Keith Smart was 87. Oh. I'm I have that game memorized. I used to watch the tape when I was a kid, like the way kids watch movies, oh, yeah. I would just watch it over and over. Oh, who again. is the guy?
1: Um, <laughs> the Big Ten. Who's the Big Ten Player of the Year? Um, last name with the C? Oh, Calbert. Calbert Calvert Yeah. You're of? Him yep. and Jim Still Jackson used to go uh, at it. Was it Jimmy Jackson? It. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Jimmy Jackson, Ohio State. Yep. That was a good Ohio State team too. That
1: was that was, you mm-hmm. know besides some of those teams in the 60s that was you know the the John Lucas teams that was probably yeah Chris Jan man, that team was so fucking good
0: they had a big power forward too uh, Perry was it Perry Carter think- Lawrence Funderburk that's exactly who it was he went to IU and then i think he yeah, transferred to yeah local boy Ohio State. local
1: kid yeah. yeah yeah
0: that's awesome so i got to say like the the timing of this book I got this book at probably the exact right time because I'd just finished Closer You Are, the book about the Cutter book, yeah. Robert Pollard. Yeah. yeah. And I was very, very primed for it. And the fact that I discovered Bill Fox not too long ago has just been making me think that Ohio may be like the most special place oh, for a, yeah. a time.
1: It was... Um... You know, and I don't know if if it's touched on so much, yet there's a little tiny, well, they're all tiny chapters, right? Probably speaks to my attention deficit disorder. Um, There's a little piece that doesn't have a year. It's just Ohio where Uh I write about what it's like living in Ohio, like being the continual also ran the always the underdog, the, um, Mm -hmm you know, I think from all when you're from Ohio, you sort of have this sort of chip on your shoulder. Cause it's weird. Cause we're Midwest, but we also have mm-hmm. like three of the largest cities. So I, I, I almost right. feel cause Cleveland is very much a Northeastern city. And Cincinnati is very much a mm-hmm. Southern city. Um, it's much more like Louisville mm-hmm. or Nashville. Um, yeah. than it is. And then Columbus is sort of like just, a big, like Austin, like a big college town. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what is neat about Ohio is, in Ohio arts is sort of being ignored has, like we have our own thing, you know, we have our own thing. And since we're not in, you know, we're not Chicago and we're not on either coast, there's this idea it's so kind of almost of a self-deprecating identity, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. works in in order to be creative and to have a sense of community. It doesn't always work in the sense of having any sort of mainstream success or um, like a mm-hmm. wider audience. But it's a nice... Yeah fermenting ground. Um, you know, like, like, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, like Cleveland, the sound of Cleveland is very different than the sound of Columbus or the sound of. But what's interesting is that um, historically, and I think especially in in the 70s, 80s, and up until, you know, even now, all the cities worked really well together. Like we all almost seemed like local bands, like, So I knew Bill, Mm -hmm. um, Jerry Wicken introduced me to Bill, um, and the mice obviously. Um, and yeah, so that's, I I think I touch on that in the book that the sort of community, you know, and you mentioned scat and Robert and uh, obviously Pollard and those guys. So,
0: yeah, it is kind of, it's really neat seeing, like, the the GBV world coming in, the Cleveland world coming in, and then anyway, just all of these Columbus bands who are, you know, documented. And just, like, I, I think listening to, to those bands has been really exciting because it's almost... it It goes back to a, like... I don't want to say primitive because that sounds dismissive, but things weren't quite mm-hmm. as streamlined then, and so listening to bands like Gaunt and mm-hmm. Bell Reeve and Log and hearing how just sort of smushed mm-hmm. together everything mm-hmm. feels—it's like different different sounds, but very strong mm-hmm. sensibilities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, as I started writing about that period really about 12 years ago, just sort of making sense of a lot of things. And in a larger sense, we were all connected to the, the bigger underground scene, um, to, you know, folks like Jar Cosloy, who's, you know, when he ran Homestead, he put out a ton of Ohio stuff, Death of Samantha, um, mm-hmm. Great Plains, uh, Gibson brothers. So he, he was very involved, but so we had, we had a pretty, you know, being a college town, we, we were very connected to other parts of the country. Like, you know, it was like this little, these little creeks and rivers that were really asphalt, right. That, that connected us all. Mm-hmm. Um And yeah. what came out of that, you know, the really sort of the eighties stuff was in the nineties of, of, um, well, everyone can record their own shit, right? Like you could do, like, you could just do whatever you wanted. You can do whatever the fuck you want and they just put it out and we have like a local pressing plant. So that's, that's what we did. But, you know, all of those records were recorded basically the same way. They were all recorded on Tascam four tracks that the, Literally, mm-hmm. in many cases, the same shitty four track, because it was you know Jerry Wick had one, Mike Rep had one, and so you would pass it around. Um, like, like yeah. somebody would come to the store and say, "Hey, Jerry's dropping off his four track," and uh, nobody could afford to go to, um, you know, no- nobody could afford to go to a studio. So, if you actually think about. You know, wine has certain flavors depending on where the grapes grow. So, uh-huh. if you if you if you consider yeah. the sound and the fact that the artifact to capture the artifacts to capture the sound were all basically either the exact same one or similar, so it, I believe mm-hmm. that energy and that taste. Um, is reflective in the sound and the same people were recording each other. So Mike Rep was, was not only recording like, like guided by voices and working on their stuff, but also the slave apartments Mm -hmm. and New Bomb Turks and gone. So it was all very much um, familiar, I guess. I I didn't want to use the word incestuous because that's, that's, I think that's a derogatory term, right? Right. Um, Very much. Yeah.
0: I think that, you know, along with Mike Rep, just listening to I Stayed Up All Night, listening to records, there is a uniformity to that whole comp that feels so. The fact that you're saying everybody's using the same couple of four tracks, it feels very, very much in the fabric of that compilation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and that was a that was a record I I had it, it took several years to put it out. Um, I think financially was one reason, but also just being a disorganized sort of person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the idea behind that record was, I grew up listening to to, to folk music. My mom was a, a communist. And mm-hmm. so we listened to Pete Seeger and Gene Ritchie records and Woody Guthrie. Those were the yeah. Lead Belly. Those, those Folkways records were the first records I had ever listened to, ever owned. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to capture that idea of like field recordings. Right. But the field recordings in the 90s obviously were very different than the ones that Alan Lomax was making in the thirties and forties, like t- t- yeah. taking his recording equipment out into the fields or, or yeah. the, the, the churches or whatever those were, So, um, you know, we had those, you know, that four track. So that was, so the idea was for those artists to create something as they would in their, you know, just in their bedroom or mm-hmm. their, li- their living room. Um, and I think you're right. I think it holds together pretty seamlessly. Um, and that was not a, con- <laughs> just like most things in my life, that was not <laughs> a conscious effort. There was, there was literally no planning in that. Uh, it just happened that way.
0: Of course. I mean, I, planning, planning's for suckers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned your mom. Um, I I kind of start all of these with asking, where did you grow up and was there music in the house? And I, I gathered from the book that you kind of grew up kind of all over the place.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to say when I was younger, I was an army brat without the army. My, my mom was um, in various relationships. So we would mm-hmm. move depending on that relationship. Um, I was born in Columbus, grew up till the age of five. I was in Athens, Ohio, which is college town, Ohio University. Um, mm. Moved to Youngstown. My mom remarried, moved to Youngstown, moved to Long Island, um, the far end of Long Island in Springs. Um, mm. Weird, weird little uh, bit of information. William de Kooning was our neighbor. Um, oh wow. Yeah, so we we lived we we were not wealthy. Uh we lived in a um a summer house that somebody from the city had and they uh-huh. just we rented it year round. Um Yeah. And but he had dementia. My mom said he would come out and play with us or come talk to us and his his wow. wife would like come and have to retrieve him. <laughs> So anyway, I'm like, well, if he just would have like scribbled some, like done a little picture, (laughs) just here you go. I'd be fine. My records would have been much more successful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So from New York, I went to Virginia and then I went back to Athens and then in high school, uh, I left Athens, which was just a beautiful place to to grow up. Probably Uh very much like, you know, Bloomington or Valparaiso or whatever. Um, to a really rural, rural, small um, community town in, in Western Ohio, which Mm -hmm. um, really influenced, I think what it did was for me, uh, whatever outsider um, feeling I had growing up, moving a lot like that, just sort of cemented it, that, I don't mm. fit in, and the one thing that was always from from the earliest age that helped center me and make me feel like everything was going to be okay was music. Um, mm. Really, at, at and I touch on that in the book, obviously um, about how connected I felt, and even now, like I go to the gym, uh, you know, four or five days a week and run. And people are like, how do you do that? You're like, you know, you're 52. How, how do you do that? And, I'm, and I, I just really this simple part of it is I put on my headphones and it's like I'm 15 again going up to my room listening to records. So even at 52, yeah. I it's nothing about the exercise. It's more about I can wall off the whole world and listen to what, you know, listen to whatever I want very loudly Mm -hmm. um yeah so
0: my um my dad moved around a lot when he was a kid and i take so much musical influence from him and and i thought about him a lot reading the book because he had told me when he was when he was young my records were my friends Mm -hmm. and um so when i guess when you're In high school, that's at the time of, uh, you know, bands like R.E.M. and The Replacements. and Were you just absorbing all of that as it was coming out?
1: Um, So I was really, the the little town I I lived in was called Catawba. Like, we didn't have a stoplight. We didn't even have curbs. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, some people were like, oh, we had a one-town stop. I'm like, we didn't have fucking curbs. It was like road, grass.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. So, and at the time, and you know, this was early mid-80s. So, everything, so it had the radio. So, you could get the radio from Columbus. So, you could get, you know, in Dayton, you could get the hard rock stations. Which was Leonard Skinner and Bad Company and Def Leppard, a lot of Def Leppard, Um, Motley Crue. I mean, that was it. It, it, We didn't have MTV, but in that little town, that's what everybody they listened to hair rock, or Uh they listened to like country music. Like Hank Williams Jr. was really big, Um, Mm -hmm. and it was a very sort of macho. Miss Trump country, um, yeah. but during the 80s. So I pined for, for new music. And w- Wittenberg, which is a small liberal arts college in Springfield, had a, a radio station, WOSU. And actually, my junior year in high school, for, for a couple of years, I was allowed to DJ there every summer. So I did a, a late night thing. So I got turned on to um, like homestead bands and a lot of the you know Dead Milkmen things like that uh, yeah. replacements. And there was one summer I went to Athens and lived with my sister, and I worked at a at a Mexican place, and I cleaned chickens and washed dishes. But the, this is the, the – the after the, the musics that I was turned on to there, at the time, the drinking age was 18 or 19. Um, mm-hmm. And I was 15, but I looked older. So I was allowed to drink. So I would drink Heineken's and wash dishes. I was 15. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And uh, um, there was a guy who – that's where I heard – R.E.M. That's where I heard Lou Reed for the first time. New Sensations had just come out, Uh, and some people sort of dismissed that the eighties Lou Reed, but that was like that was mind blowing to me. I had never heard anybody sing about the things that Lou Reed was singing about, and I had never, you know, R.E.M. was so mysterious. They, I mean, what what is he saying? And uh, it didn't sound like anything. The production was different, Uh, and so. so i I read a lot of magazines. Rolling Stone. There was a, a magazine called Record. Um, I would mm. get Spin. Spin had just come out, and I would whatever I saw that looked in, interesting. I would buy um, Tom Waits, The Smiths. Like mm. uh, I said, the Replacements, the Waterboys, all of this stuff. Uh, so that was very I love those Waterboys. It, it was like. Yeah, it was, it was almost like, um, I lived in a black and white world, like, and everything was technicolor. There was a world outside of the deep oppression I felt emotionally living where I was, which is to say, I wasn't, and, and I don't want people when they read the book or they listen to me like that, I was this crazy outsider. I was a popular kid. Um, I, you know I wasn't like I wasn't the Ali Sheedy character in Breakfast Club I was probably more like her than than the other folks but um, mm-hmm. but I internally I was like there's no, like when I'm when I graduate from here I'm never coming back to this um, which is weird because I yeah. came 40 miles east and I've never <laughs> left but Columbus is a very different <laughs> um, environment than than other parts of right. the state. So,
0: yeah, I, I I think that I've always been drawn to college towns just because there's at least something that's just like keeping a liberal wheel turning. Yeah, and...
1: mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think I could ever live in um, in a suburb, like even in Columbus. I just don't. I need to walk. I need to, to feel the energy. I need to, um, see different, different types of people. Um, I, Mm. I like to walk. So, you know, my, my, my favorite coffee shop is at the end of my street and just, like, I am a person of routine, but I need that. You know, I don't mind music blaring in the middle of the night. Um, you know, somebody driving down the street. It it doesn't really bother me. It's like, oh, okay, I'm connected somehow.
0: Yeah. So, in and in the book Love, Death, and Photosynthesis, you're you're telling your story. You're also telling the story of your friends Jenny May Leffel and Jerry Wick. And you and Jenny moved to Columbus together.
1: Right yes, she was school. my um, she was my high school sweetheart. Uh, she we we started going out my senior year, so I, I think I write about our first couple mm-hmm. meeting. Um, yeah, and we were. It was I didn't want to move to Columbus. I wanted to, to go to OU in Athens, but I had such a. Yeah. The last two years of high school, were for because of family issues, were really difficult for me. And so, finding somebody who loved me, right? Um, and this, you know, that early exposure to sex didn't hurt. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like one of the things I want to tell my my kids, you know, but you can't say that. I'm like, listen, you've, you're going to have a lifetime uh, of orgasms. Don't don't put all your baskets with this one. <laughs> 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 <Parenting> <laughs> <scale>. <laughs> um <laughs> oh. Maggie and I sometimes think about making these uh these greeting cards. <laughs> that that could be like my graduation greeting card line. <laughs> 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 I, yeah.
0: I remember I was talking to uh, a friend of of mine about an, another friend who was in a relationship throughout college with the same person, and they like they knew each other in high school, and they got together like right before college started, stayed together through all of college, and then broke up. And her dad said something to the effect of. So they just missed out on all that sex that they could have been having. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly. So I gave up my college dream, which was going Uh to OU, to come to Columbus. And so I I went to a small, um, small liberal arts college um, here in Columbus, Otterbein. And I lasted one quarter. Yeah. Um, I, I, wasn't emotionally, I wasn't, I, have got, um, attention deficit and I've got some learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't prepared for, for college. Um, and I ended up moving that freshman year. I ended up moving actually in Jenny's dorm room. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I was, I was homeless, right. but I wasn't. Right. Um, so I took all my records and all my tapes and I took all my clothes that were in garbage bags, you know, hefty bags. And I moved into our dorm room for like three mm-hmm. months. Um, but what was so important then, cause we did everything together. We were poor. I, I, you know, I had a variety of, of pretty shitty jobs was high street where we were it was like the replacements at the time were playing Stash is a little mm-hmm. club and Camper, Camper Van Beethoven was playing there and Nick Cave was, was you know, playing smaller yeah. venues. So like all, and the the music scene, like Great Plains and the Gibson brothers and Scrawl and RC mob. Um, so we would go and see a lot of this music, but we were, we weren't a part of the scene mm-hmm. yet, but it was also like, oh, fuck, like. This is amazing. Um, shortly thereafter, I got my first job at a record store. And Jenny and I, you know, we, we lasted together for a few years. Um, but that record store, I think at one time I was working at three different record stores. <laughs> um, I was working at Discount. I was working at Moles. I was working at Bent Back. And then I got my job at used kids and I had two jobs. Then I was managing one store and then working at used mm-hmm. kids. So at 19, 20 years old, that was pretty, I was like, okay, I've made it like, this is what right. if, I, I get to listen to music. It's like a fat guy working in a pizza uh-huh. shop. Like, <laughs> fuck, I can just eat pizza all uh-huh. day, um, which works for a while. Right. So, and then, then with Jenny, she was always extremely cur- extremely creative she was writing songs um when she was a kid for her little brother and sister Mm -hmm. to sing to sleep um and she was i mean in hindsight right like looking back she had schizoaffective disorder Mm -hmm. um and she would get extremely manic at times but eventually all of those that untreated mental illness and all of those things caught up with her Mm -hmm. but she was she was she could change the energy in her room like that in a very positive way because she was so fun. yeah like carol Burnett I love lucy kind mm-hmm. of funny um no boundaries that, that was the thing with her and and when you think about um and i, I don't know if i get it a, across in the book but i've been thinking about it a lot as people have been you know been doing interviews and people asking me about it Part of the story I want to tell with her is her being a woman with severe mental illness, severe addiction issues, severe abuse problems, Mm -hmm. how she was perceived within the music community, not just locally, but nationally. Um, And then further when she became homeless, how, um, how she was treated again by a system that failed her. Yeah. So I, obviously I do think if she was a male um, really with the amount of talent she had as a musician and how, how smart she was, I mean, she was, she was pretty, I mean, she graduated near the top of her class, not national honor society. She had a lot of um, accomplishments as a, as a, as a student, as a high schooler, um, but if she was a male, I think her life would have been drastically different. Not maybe da- drastically; it would have been different,
0: mm-hmm.
1: being afforded the non-judgment within the music industry or or even the indie rock scene, which which you know I'm very much a part of and very progressive. Mm-hmm. But looking back, it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> um, especially in the light of what we're working with now with system, systematic racism and systematic. Um, um, I'm trying to think of the word of of how women are viewed and treated in and the power imbalance. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, our relationship didn't. I think we we ended our relationship probably when I was like 21. But I always felt protective of her, of one, I believed in her talent immensely. Mm-hmm. I don't think she did. I actually, I, in hindsight, I don't think she really fucking cared that much. She just wanted to do, Yeah. she just wanted to, she needed to create and burn off whatever was inflaming her.
0: Happening in, inside her. Like yeah. Really you know,
1: I think Pollard is very much like that yeah. as well. Like, you know, like, I just, so she would, she would write a book, you know, she would write a book and then throw it away. She would paint, she would get in these things where she was, would paint and then she would throw it all away. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're doing a a compilation of her unreleased stuff. I just put a song up. I I figured out how to do a band camp. I I figured out how to do the band camp in the tactics. Um, (laughs) so I put an unreleased song up there yesterday. Um, But for that comp, we don't have any master tape. There are no master tapes of any of her stuff. So the, she put a lot of singles out um, on various labels and all those recordings for the record are from the vinyl because they're just, there's nothing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So, um, so that was, that's that idea of how she lived and how she was creative and how, um, you know, I, it's a personal story. So it's, it's more about how she impacted me and influenced me. Mm-hmm. And it was weird because in her life I did become her, I, I don't want to use the word caregiver because I wasn't her caregiver. Um, you were her phone call though. I was her phone call. I was, I helped navigate her through a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when I became a social worker. Um, Yeah. You you know, which, which, which was, uh, she's the reason I became a social worker.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I wanted to ask you about that because I, I think that you do a really wonderful job in the book of, of portraying Jenny's personality through her, her work. And then also, I think you have what is a very learned and informed perspective on on her as as a person with with an illness. And Mm -hmm. um, I I wanted to ask about the influence of the work that you do, because you seem to be very, um, you know, adept at identifying the... Um, the behaviors that are manifestations Mm -hmm. of, you know, her addiction and her, um, her mental illness. Mm -hmm.
1: I, um, so there was a a period in the mid to late nineties where in our scene, like I just mentioned, Bob Patrick passing, um, Mm -hmm. where we had a lot of loss, um, that Jim Shepard from V3 hung himself. Uh, Chris Wilson, who was a musician in Monster Truck 5, died. Jack Taylor, who was in Monster Truck 5 in 68, come back, overdosed and died. Um, it was this sort of succession of deaths that happened really closely. At the same time, the the 90s dream of and contextually, it was very different coming out of the 80s. Um, it's sort of this funnel of how you, how you were able to succeed creating your art at that time was you had to get signed to a major label. That was basically it. Um, but the apparatus wasn't built. I mean, the 60s and 70s were much more, um, um, you know, I think about Seymour Stein, like, the, the people running those sure, labels, David yeah. Geffen, really it was about art, but also like as, as a commodity, they wanted to make money, but they would build artists and they would say, you know, it's okay if, if you're only going to sell 100,000 records or 50,000 records. Think about somebody right. like Randy right. Newman, right? Um, but there was this sort of pull of, I want that, I need that from bands to mm-hmm. continue what I'm doing and, and it's fun. And, you know, you can get laid and get free dinners and all that shit, but it was, there was also a conflict of being part of it. So um, at, on one sense, and I'm going to circle around to it, to, to, to what, what you brought up uh, about what, what was happening to me, but a lot of the bands from Columbus and across the country got signed to these major labels who had no idea what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a framework there. Uh, it was like a major league baseball team firing the coaching staff and all the players and bringing a new one saying, this is what we're going to do. Now we're going to do the pro style offense. Right. Um, it doesn't work that way. And so mm-hmm. the whole industry signed all these people, didn't know what to do. You know, that's where AAA radio came out. But. The you know Clear Channel stuff—they weren't playing this music. They still weren't. So, um, so all these bands, all my friends, got signed to to major labels, and they all got dropped by major labels after one record. So towards the end of the nineties, um, I think there was just sort of a sense of fuck. Uh, and mm-hmm. for myself, my drinking. And my relationship issues were hitting a point where um, th- I didn't see much of a future, either mm-hmm. with music or my career, because I, you know, I dropped out of college. Um, so I was, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Um, I got married and my my ex-wife um, got a job teaching in Gainesville and at the university of Florida. So I was like confronted with growing up. Right. We talked about that at the beginning of like being mm. an adult, which I wasn't ready for. Mm. Uh, I, I moved down there. I had given up my, I was a co-owner at Used kids records. I gave that up. I moved to Gainesville. I don't know anybody there. I helped pick out our house, which was like three blocks. It was on campus from this. I was, and I remember saying I can drink at that bar. Like, we went in, checked it out. I had a drink, and I was like, "I can walk there because I need to walk. Uh-huh. I'm not going to get a DUI." Um, so it was weird. Like my life was subconsciously revolving around this. What my life had always been. Um, yeah. And we were we got into counseling because everything was just a mess. And I, I remember I saw like a, psych, a psychiatrist, and he said, um, "He said, well, you're definitely an alcoholic," and um, and you might be bipolar, and I I walked out of there and got in the car and said, "Well, he thinks I'm bipolar, and I might be an alcoholic." Um, <laughs> so um, not quite
0: ready, were we? No,
1: I wasn't quite ready. But uh, and I'm not bipolar. I've got I, I'm depressed. I mean, that's so. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: anyway, I um, I got sober at that time. And mm-hmm. um, I've been sober since then, so it's, it's been a long Good time. Um, but I I got involved, so I grew up in that mm-hmm. sense. Not growing up to get like a nine to five job, but I grew up emotionally, and uh, I gave up a lot of beliefs that I had. I became uh, involved in Buddhism. I became a Buddhist. Um, I started wow. doing a lot of Eastern reading, a lot of meditation, went back to college, got all my degrees, um, worked, had kids with this idea of, and at that time, Jenny's life was, comp- and Jerry died in the middle of that. Like I so said, Jerry died, Right, he was killed, um, Jerry Wick from Gone, I don't think we mentioned him yet. And then... Jenny's throw him pretty heavy, yeah, Don't Jenny I'll put Jerry okay over. <laughs> Jenny um, had moved to Miami uh, and her life was spiraling out of control. She was involved with a a guy who was a millionaire um, and they lived together, but he was heavily into cocaine, and they were both um both severely mentally ill. And so it was weird because I wanted her, like I thought at the time, just go to AA, you know, just do AA because that's what I Like I went into treatment I went to 12 step groups mm-hmm. and I was like, this is what I didn't understand was like, Oh, she's got this severe mental illness going on, but also that those programs don't work for everybody. Um,
0: yeah. I want to circle back um and and talk about I guess Jerry's Jerry's such a great uh way to to get into that world cuz I I think what this what your book really brought to my attention was just the the commodity that a 7-inch had become at that time because it was something mm-hmm. that was cheap to release and also, when you have <laughs> nirvana happening, what a seven inch does for a band it, it it becomes this this gold ticket thing there's just so much excitement going on during that time and i I feel like just living vicariously through you you know working at use kids where um oh we've got. A couple new records from this <laughs> matador label what's this? oh teenage <laughs> fan club and super chunk and then you know the first pavement seven inches and stuff like that um just what a what a time to be
1: around it, it was it was um seven inches were were so amazing and it's weird i i have this um i have a i have a really nice like orbit turntable that's got a belt but you have to like change the belt to play your to play 45. So I'm like, fuck, Mm -hmm. I'm never playing a 45 again. (laughs) Um, so I have all these 45s downstairs. Um, but it was really, they were, you're right. They were cheap. They were accessible. You could put your best song on it. Uh, Mm -hmm. and there wasn't, um, and, and college radio would play them. You know, they would play seven inches, this was, even though CDs were out, CDs were so expensive and it was sort of like, um, CDs were, I don't want to say evil, but it wasn't, it wasn't something to aspire to. Seven inches in records were, that was, mm-hmm. they, they were, um, these sort of talisman, right? Like we could, we could, these artifacts that you could put on and Boom. For three minutes, your life was different, and mm-hmm. for everybody in the room who got it, it was a secret. Yeah. It was a secret. It was a joyous secret. Uh, and they were, uh, like I said, they were affordable. It, it didn't. They sounded like shit, but who cared? And and um, you know, at the store, we. The store provided that opportunity to really step and be involved in that world from just a a customer. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think what was interesting about that underground scene with Sub Pop and Homestead and um, Matador, obviously, so many other labels, Ajax and Scat, that... There wasn't there really wasn't this expectation of, oh, I'm gonna put out a seven inch. Like Cirvana, you know, I think really what the first song that captured Nirvana, what they could be, would be the Sliver single. Um mm-hmm. like you heard that and you're like, fuck, this could be this sounds like a hit.
0: Yeah. So it's still my favorite, Nirvana. Yeah,
1: it's so good. Um but the expectation was wasn't like I'm gonna put a seven inch out. And get signed to a major label. That was not it. I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this seven inch out because it's, it's fun. The process is fun, but my friends can listen to it. And not only do my friends, can my friends listen to it? These people who have the same thoughts and opinions and ideals that I do who live in New York or Athens, Georgia or Iowa city or wherever can, we can share this we can sh- like this, we can share this together, this moment together. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and gone, you know, I remember when, when we did the Gaunt uh, Jim motherfucker, like when I first heard it, it, it was like, Oh fuck. This is, this is, this is a fucking great song. This is a rumbling fucking bus. Um, shooting arrows like it was so powerful and um and just knowing like it doesn't matter if anybody bought it like for me it wasn't like a thing it was like this is so important and these are people i love and we now now it's forever (laughs) right yeah um now it's forever it's it's encased uh and you know what's interesting about that song is is after jerry died rough trade they used to do these comps and they did a comp of, it was a two CD comp of, it's called rock and roll. And it's, it's their 50 greatest rock and roll punk rock songs ever. Um, and so that song is on it. Mm-hmm. So Jerry just would have fucking, yeah. cause that's, that's the, appro- I mean, I think we all wanted to have money, but that he, you wanted that approval from the rest of your community.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised with, Guided by voices, just taking off the way that they did. Because um, I know that you were an early, you were an early supporter.
1: Here's a weird thing about that, um, and and like being somewhat in an insular world. Um, I knew Bob as a as a customer at Used Kids, and um, he would come up, you know, once a month and buy records, and. When they were working on Propeller, they were um, Bob and Toby and Bob's brother uh, Jim, um, and uh, Mitch and Kevin. They would come up to the store. So at Used Kids, we had one side which was like new and new stuff and CDs and Mm -hmm. used records that weren't worth anything, and then uh, not worth anything. But we had a collector's side called the Annex. So Mike Rep worked on that side. So they would come, arrive like late afternoon, um, go next door with Mike, have some beers, go to Larry's, which was a bar right down the street. We would meet. We would all have beers. They would go back to the Annex, smoke a lot of weed, and work on Propeller. So... What I knew, especially from that, because because I I had um self astir- self self aerial nostalgia, mm-hmm. right? I I mm-hmm. had that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got the test pressing for Propeller, it was like, oh, this is this is good. It wasn't like hearing sl- sliver, because but you heard the the melodies were so fucking powerful, and it was mm-hmm. really this um it it was this ohio thing like we're creating this in our little clubhouse right ohio in our in our clubhouse of dayton and columbus and news kids and whatever um for ourselves to be we're going to play for ourselves without any sort i mean it's a school they were all older they're all like ron house's age so bob's like 10 years older than me right um so, no, there wasn't this idea that they would become something. Um, and then, you know, we shared that a lot. We shared Propeller. And, and of course, then um, Vampire and Tatus came out. And you know, it, we helped a little bit to get them connected to Scat, to Robert. Um, mm-hmm. But at times, like, um, so my my girlfriend... Is she's eight years younger than me, but she was like, you know, they were my favorite band in college. Like me and and her her one of her best friends, Lisa, um, Lisa Rowe, who's runs Trouble in Mind with Bill Row. She was like, We would oh. see every one of their concerts, we would drive to other cities and see them. And I, and at that time being in the world, like you're in it, you're not outside of it looking in. So, so mm-hmm. you don't, you're not even uh, aware of it. Um, and I think I sort of became known because of, of crying your knife away um, and, mm-hmm. and being, you know, pushing, like, I, I push them on people just like I push Jenny or gone or movie. I push them all as much with this kind of evangelical, like, you need to hear this because it's so important yeah. to me. Um mm-hmm. But I'm also sharing this with you. But I'm also protective of it. Um, so, mm-hmm. which I don't know—it's the record store guy in me. Um, but yeah, I just I didn't know that until later, I guess. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, so you just don't know at, when you're in it. Um, and, and of course, by the time, by the time, a a lot of those bands during that era got really big and have remained big and, and, you know, like I saw Neutral Milk Hotel whenever they did their, I think they sold out the, they sold out the, like the outdoor venue, um, here. And I was like, shit, I, I promoted them at Stashes for a hundred bucks. And, um, they were late and <laughs> yeah and yeah they were late and they borrowed you know they borrowed Muviola's bass cabinet or, or whatever uh-huh. it was um um but you know being in school throughout the aughts and stuff like i had no idea yeah like, like 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 they they had the uh connections play which is a band whose records i put out um they had i mean which is really cool they had connections they were like they knew enough right that, mm-hmm, oh, there's this mm-hmm. band from Columbus. We like this new band connections. They, they'll open up. So, so I went and I was like, holy, she's like what happened? And then, um, my daughter asked me, she's like, dad, you know, have you ever listened to this band, you know, neutral milk hotel, or have you ever listened to pavement? Oh. And, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and I don't, I don't want to be that dad, but I, sometimes I have to be and I'm like, yeah, uh, they slept on my couch. <laughs> yeah. They, they, or, or I think what, what is even better, like, 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 what is even better than saying, "Oh, they slept on my couch," is like they took a shit in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm gonna start saying.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> um.
1: So I, hope, I want to. Uh-huh. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. <laughs> oh
0: my <God>. That is. <laughs> I wanted to ask you talk about it in um in the acknowledgments on, on the book how how these stories just started pouring out of you when you were in Amsterdam on a, mm-hmm. on a trip and so mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in what that looked like and I guess you know I know you, you talk about your connection to Amsterdam in the book mm-hmm. um but you know, it's a it's a funny place for things to just pour out the way that they do.
1: I had started writing in the early 90s. Um, mm. I had write, written a lot of short stories. I had written a lot of very, very, very bad poetry. Um, <laughs> extremely bad. <laughs> um, it's hard. Yeah. You don't even yeah, know and-
0: why it's bad until you...
1: Yeah, and, and it's like yeah, and,
0: and,
1: and my partner is a is a is a very excellent poet, and so it's kind of like I could I'm like okay, I can never show mm. you that, um, but I I wrote a lot, and um, I I do think I was a good writer. I mean, I I think I I, I do think I have a talent, um, but I never I never took a writing course. I never. Um, even though initially I wanted to be a journalism, uh, a journal, I was a journalism major. Um, I, my writing is very stream of conscious. Mm -hmm. So I had written a lot. In fact, I I had written a, uh, a story, um, about my drinking and I didn't even know what it was about, but it was like one day, one day in the life of my drink, my drinking, kind of like, um the James Joyce novel, which I could never read because it was just what the fuck are you? It's like algebra with words. Um, So I, I tried to write this story, this love story about my ex-wife and it was her and her life and what she meant to me. And there was me. And in the middle of that Venn diagram was, was the alcohol. Mm. Um, And I, I, I quit writing because of my drinking, like, and I never showed in anybody. I did one reading in public, um, Gilmore Tamney, uh, who's a writer and, and she was in this band, the Yips asked me to, to read. Um, and I, I have social anxiety, which is weird because it doesn't come off when I talk, but I do Just trust me. <laughs> um, so I went back to school and I got, um, I got three degrees in succession so I was working full time and we were in the Netherlands. My, my ex-wife is Dutch and I was really struggling with how Jenny's life had gone. Cause she, at that time she had been on and off homeless for many years. Mm-hmm. She would get housing. She would lose it. She was about two years. She was completely homeless in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just finished my second degree. And there I was, Jerry had been dead for about seven or eight years. Um maybe maybe a little bit longer. And I just started writing about them um and how our lives had changed with no no intention of writing a book. There was no never an, an intention of, of writing a book. So I wrote it down and um, I wrote that first entry in just one sitting. Uh, and I was like, I had heard about blogs, but I didn't know what they were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, I think I said, I probably sent Ted Hadamer, who's a, a friend of mine in, uh, you know, an email. and like, you know, what are these blogs? And so he was like, oh, there's this, you could use this thing called WordPress and you could just put your writing. So that's what I did. Um, so, what I started – what was what was weird, those first couple entries in this sort of indie rock world blew up. Mm. Um, and it's like – so there was like – Paste did a little story on it. And I was getting a lot of readers, which was crazy um, because I didn't – like the only – i would advertise it on would be facebook and that's what i still do i'm like i wrote yeah like those of you who are interested i wrote and so i just like i put a link like Uh i wrote about this (laughs) um (laughs) uh, but i was getting thousands of readers from all over the world um and i was writing not not to get more readers or anything so i've never written with that intention I just write whatever, whatever is coming to me. Um, and so it was very much a cathartic process, but at the same time, I was still trying to very much help Jenny. Um, Mm. and so there were like, you know, articles coming out about the blog and her, uh, and what was really, what was kind of weird around 2011, um and and the other thing I, I went back so I got my master's degree and I got my master's up at Case Western in Cleveland, so I would go up every weekend for not one week in a month for school mm-hmm. um so you know, I don't drink um I really wanted to make I was very committed in my marriage, so I didn't want to go out and do some of the things that I used to do
0: mm-hmm.
1: um in my relationships, so I would go to the gym and we go to the Y and then I would go to a coffee shop and just write.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so it was this cathartic process around 2011, 2010, 2011, I got a, a contacted by a screenwriter in Hollywood, um, which was, which was cool. Right. And I was like, Oh wow, this is, yeah, great. Make it a movie. Give me some money. <laughs> um, and, and so we had, we, you know, we corresponded via email and he, he actually wrote for desperate housewives and worked on some movie stuff. And he's like, I really want to like make a screenplay. Um, and I was like, go, go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, this idea of any sort of commitment is too much. I'm like, yeah, take the idea, go. Um, and then he was, he was cool. He was like, listen, um, I really want to do this. I believe in this, but I've thought about it and you should just make this a book first. And, um, then, like you could sell the rights, and that's much more ethical to do yeah, so i I remember thinking that's a great idea. Uh, I'm not gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> um i'm not i I'm not, I don't have the organizational skills to do that,
0: mm-hmm. so
1: I just kept writing um and then um, I met Joe. Steinhardt from Don Giovanni about five or six years ago,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, we were at a there's a local um, publishing company, two Dollar Radio, which puts out great books they they have a festival every year um, for authors and poets and musicians. so I met Joe there and and he said, "I'm a big fan of your blog mm. and um, he was at that time, I think Joe was living in New Jersey. So I was like, oh, that's great. And then he, he said, you know, I put out books. Um, if you ever want to make this into a book, um, I don't just do records. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> um, so when Jenny died, I wrote something about her death. And he just sent me a text message. And he goes, let's do the book. Yeah. Now is the time to do the book. Um. So that's where it came about, and so actually the organization of the book is very much how I wrote the blog. There's not a linear um, narrative to it; it mm-hmm. jumps around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and Lisa Carver, um, Lisa Suckdog, edited the book, and when I sent her everything, and and um, Initially, uh, my friend Travis here in town, who's who's a writer and editor, he was going to edit it. And he was just like, I have no idea how to put this together. I, yeah. I really don't. Um, and so I sent it to Lisa. And she said, Bela, this you have to have this in a linear way. It's not going to work. Um, and I was like, well, good luck. Because I'm not like... <laughs> like, I work full time. I teach. I do. Like, I'm not... Um, and then she wrote me back the next day and she said, it works. I, I read, I've read like 10 of these things and it works perfectly. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, thank God. Cause I don't want to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, this that DR it's a DIY thing, right? Like you just, okay, here it is. But it's also what, what I realized too is there's a commitment factor there. There's this, and, and it's been, you know, obviously I love to talk, but there's been an anxiety with me of putting myself out there. Of, mm-hmm. It's easier for me to write about how broken I feel and putting it out into the universe than me putting that writing together and putting it out there and saying, buy this. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Of having other people invest money in me and saying this is important because there's there's this core part of me, you know, that broken part that I think many of us have that says I'm not worth your faith in me. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, me, you know, it's important. And, and again, like I said, I think I'm a good writer and I think it's I think it's a good book. And I think the stories, more importantly, the stories need to be told. Whether people like it or not, they're still... It's like the book for me is my own seven-inch record. Mm. It's codified now. The lives of those people who I love so much and the the life of music that has informed my life and kept me company and consoled me and um, inspired me to like go get laid, right? <laughs> um, uh-huh. It's now... The, the pages are the grooves of of a forty-five and I hope that comes across that um that people can not just read the book but hear the book. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: I think that what what you do communicate so well in your writing is you do hear these people and also you know, I, I feel like I got to see them through you know the eyes of the Bela who had uh, the birthday party at stashe's and also the, the present day Bela. Um, seeing the way that you speak of these people, like I know what Gaunt sounds like just by the way you describe Jerry, and I know what Jenny's records sound like, by the way that you describe Jenny, and then I go and i and I listen to them and I find them and it it was a very, very moving experience for me, and I think that you did. Really, such a such an excellent job in communicating with all of your intentions. Thank you. On, yeah, it's a really really special
1: book. Thank you. I, I I appreciate it. Really, I I do. It's um, you know, even in light of what happened today, um, it's. I think it's it's hard for those of us. So there's really something really, really interesting as somebody who has a substance abuse issue um, that those of us who are drawn to the arts and those of us who are drawn to substances, we we actually feel our environment differently on a cellular level than other people. Um, there's just this sort deep sense of sensitivity that, that we have. Um, it, it took me years to to realize that and to learn about it. You know, part of this through my job as an educator and a social worker and um, but one, it's, it's hard to, to receive compliments, but it's hard to um, not even notice things that are rippling around us. So, I think those of us who need to create, it's probably mm-hmm. the same reason why you felt, why it's important for you to say, I need to do this podcast. Because there's something I need to connect with. Yeah, There's something invisible there that's, that is invisible, but I feel it all the time. Like our bladder's operating at the same moment. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so in, in, anyway, I just want to say thank you for... For, for the compliment. Um, you know, it's very, it's very touching for me when somebody reaches out and said, Oh, I read, I read this thing you wrote and it made me cry. Or I laughed a lot at what you wrote, or I write a lot about my kids now. Um, mm-hmm. Everything on my blog is, is for the most part, I do write some, some um, fiction. I write some short stories. I've never shared those with anybody, but, You know, if I have a parent reach out to me, you know, maybe from Vermont or somewhere and says, wow, I just read what you wrote about your daughter. Um, And it made me laugh or it made me cry or whatever it was. It's like, um, wow, that's that's powerful. For me, it's powerful of saying um, I was able to connect. I was able to have some I was able to help somebody feel. Something and maybe put it into words what they were feeling.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, as somebody who can't play music or has never desired to make mu- music, it's nice to realize that the music, I, whatever music I make by typing um, resonates with people. So, so I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on and talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. I, t- I probably talked too long. Hopefully, you can edit it down. I'll get the good stuff.
0: All right, Bubbies, you can pre-order Love, Death, and Photosynthesis at dongiovannirecords.com. Visit Bela's blog at bailacocrompecker.wordpress.com. Better yet, pod.com. Better yet, podcast.bandcamp.com. Pleasure show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash better podcast. We will see you next week. Thank you, friends.